HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. If you're a farmer in New York State, join the New York State Grown and Certified program to let people know your food is grown right, right here. Learn more at certified.ny.gov. I'm Tim Gunn, author, educator, and Project Runway mentor, and you're listening to Heritage Radio. Welcome to Magnifico Radio, bringing you the latest in ethical fashion, clean beauty, and sustainable living. I'm your host, Kate Black, and this is episode 11. Discussing cotton is a challenge. The crop is grown in over 80 countries and is picked by forced labor in Uzbekistan, by hand or oxen cart, by, by between 50 to 100 million small-scale farmers, or by massive John Deere pickers and strippers worth half a million dollars each. Conversations about water or pesticide usage are just as varied. But today we're going to take a look at a sliver of the story, the cotton story that is grounded in American history and how its roots in slavery are connected to cheap fashion and the environmental and humanitarian effects of farming and garment manufacturing with traditional cotton both here in the U.S. and abroad. To launch that discussion, I'm joined by Mariah Carlson. (laughs) We practiced everything but this. I'm joined by Mariah Carlson, fashion designer, artist, activist. Ethical fashion fans will know her as one part of the now-defunct slow fashion brand, Feral Child. As passionate about teaching as she is about art and fashion, Mariah is educating young people about fashion and its impact on the world. Welcome, Mariah. Thank you so much for having me. (laughs) It's a pleasure. Just for a moment, I was like, Carlton, Carlson, it's gone. It just left me. It's okay. There's not too many of us. Exactly. Um, So cotton is heavily embedded in the identity of this country. Can you give me, give us a little history lesson? Sure. Um, One thing that I started to unearth, (laughs) no pun intended, around cotton when I was teaching about um, sustainability and um, different fiber choices that um, my students could make was the idea that cotton is inextricably linked to slavery and the history of slavery in the United States. Um, And that a kind of unknown story or not very well-known story is um, one around how cotton or slavery, rather, was starting to kind of decline. Like a lot of states north of the Mason-Dixon line had um, begun to emancipate their slaves. And, um, you know, the the U.S. had already started to say they wouldn't import any more um, slaves. 
And what happened was Eli Whitney invented the cotton gin, and that meant that the lint could be um, separated from the seed um, through a machine more quickly. And from that moment on, the slave population uh, more than quadrupled because now uh, growers could harvest more cotton and they needed more people to run the gins. Um, so what that looked like was a kind of second middle passage where slaves were then sold from northern states further down south. Um, and, you know, uh, for instance, the Trail of Tears, you may have heard about that piece of our history where um, Native Americans were moved off their land to make room for more cotton growing. Um, so, yeah, <laughs> when I think about that, I, it sort of hurts me in the heart to think about ways in which um, possibly slavery would have had ended earlier, except for this commodity that is really the foundation of this country's economy, that without being able to sell cotton and sell it at a price that was very, uh, you know, financially uh, substantial because you had free labor and lots of it. Um, that's pretty much how this country was able to survive early on and continues to do so now. <laughs> and I, I love the fact that you're that you're getting more connected because there's uh, we, and we've had on the show several fashion designers. There's a lot of um, there's a lot of people in this conversation about slow fashion and ethical fashion, but not too many people are delving back into the historical kind of roots and and responsibilities. And so you did this part of out of your teaching. Can you talk a little bit about your your current teaching gig? Sure. I, I work at a nonprofit in the Bronx called Dreamyard, and I teach of. Uh, two free fashion programs, one for high school, one for middle school. And, uh, you know, the Bronx is, is primarily people of color, um, a lot of new Im immigrants also. It's also the poorest congressional district in, in the city. Um, so the need for programming there is high, and students are very, participants are very interested in fashion, but... It, it's very important to me to teach it through a social justice lens in the sense that the population I'm working with, this is their history, their legacy. And I feel like creating a strong connection, not only just with fibers themselves, like having a rural knowledge of what your clothing's made of is, is important. But then on top of that, the history of that fiber and how, you know, for many, many folks, that's their lineage like that's where their fam why their family is where they are um why an african-american person's name last name would be anderson is directly related to slave ownership um so learning about those things learning about the history kind of brings to me the idea of what you wear and and the choices you make into focus and, I, and it's true because we've had a lot of conversation and I've certainly had a lot of conversation with people since I, I wrote my book about cost and, and this, you know, what's the cost differential and why is slow fashion more expensive than fast fashion? And mm -hmm. and so I think if we, I think looking at the inputs and where they come from and, and what, what costs 
and all the various meanings of that word, what the cost of the inputs are is really important. So are you having a conversation too about cheap fashion or fast fashion in, in this class and in this context? Oh, for sure. Um, you know, when you think about fast food and where it's kind of the highest concentration of fast food is located, um, it's generally a higher concentration in, in, in poorer neighborhoods. And the same goes for low-cost clothing that is sold at high volumes and changed over quickly and following trends quickly. And I think an awareness around that for students of where that comes from, uh, why it's there versus something else, and kind of what, what, how they can orient themselves around what's being marketed to them is important and you know it's not highly metaphorical but there's a connection between how the cotton industry worked in in uh, you know the 1800s and how it works now in the sense that when cotton was being harvested then it was sent to nor- northern states to mill and then become finished fabric that was then sent back down to the south for slaves clothes so the sort of the rougher goods were often things that were then cut into, you know, slave clothing. Uh, Slaves weren't allowed to purchase their own clothing. They were assigned clothing, um, you know, by their owner. Um, And the quality of the cloth was very distinctive, and and it was a real kind of mark of your uh, societal position, your, your position in society. Today, it's really similar that we still use fashion to kind of tell our own, uh, tell a story about our identity. And, you know, these sort of lower cost, less, um, you know, expensive goods are concentrated in places where people have less options. And it, it does sort of still serve as a mark of poverty or disenfranchisement, et cetera. Well, I'm having a total flashback to another conversation I had with somebody else about the lack of linings, mm-hmm. right? And how, how clothes are so see-through now because the quality <laughs> of the textile is so thin mm-hmm. and, and brands and, and like fast fashion manufacturers are just skipping all of those steps so there really isn't a lining. So you can walk in certain places or you can walk... I find it actually also age-segregated. I find that mm-hmm. um, younger people tend to wear more cheaply made fashion and so you see a lot of skin parts that you shouldn't be seeing or a lot of kind <laughs> sure. of glimpses of underwear. So is that what you're talking about when you say that, you know, people are marked by the fashion? Um, to some degree, but more marked in the sense that where the item came from, that, you know, Family Dollar, it's a low cost store in many neighborhoods that I pass through, doesn't, they're, they're not, they don't offer an organic cotton t-shirt. Uh, you know, they don't have a, they have $3 items, um, and they're all going to be made from that, you know, traditionally harvested cotton, which, as you know, is highly treated with chemicals that can affect, you know, your health, not to mention the health of the folks that produced those items of clothing. So the marking is really more subtle than the actual visibility of the fabric. Um, I think it's pretty hard to navigate your way around cotton. I, I, I would venture that it's hard to go any one day without wearing something cotton. So in, the, in a way, we're all sort of holding the bag on that. Um, but in certain neighborhoods, 
it's definitely a higher concentration of cheap, more cheaply made items. Um, and I mean, the way people use fashion to express something about their identity can often be about having more of a thing. Um, and being able to have an abundance of a thing, does it matter really if it's a higher quality thing? So then, you know, when that thing falls apart, it, it, it is true, too, that landfills are more concentrated in poor neighborhoods as well. So it's sort of like <laughs> the cycle kind of turns in on itself for a person wearing that cheaply made T-shirt and deciding to discard it. The, it will find its way into a landfill not far from where they live. Right. Um, whereas I think people with more economic mobility have more choices around where they can buy things and how long they can keep them based on the quality. It's true. And we had, we've had a, a past guest on here who um, is the co-founder of Material World. And she was also just talking about when you buy certain um, brands or you, you make that investment in certain known brands that obviously the clothing has a resale value that it just wouldn't if you're buying from Family Dollar. Right. Um, and so, so what's the strategy? Like, because I, 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 I love the fact that kids and millennials and like the next generation are, are getting so much access to people like you and I, like just opening up the fashion conversation and opening up some of the complexities about it. So what's, what are you talking about with the kids? Like, where is the future for them and how, how can they put their activism into, into mm -hmm. play? I mean, we do talk about like a lot of alternative fibers like Tencel and hemp and the classroom itself is a sustainable studio. So we recycle all of our cut scraps and we only use um, sustainable materials and that can be anything from an upcycled um, good to, you know, hemp or organic uh, cotton or tensile. Um, I think it's primarily it's awareness. I, I, I think that having a deeper connection to your history, but, but making it tangible through real stuff, like this is real, like real fiber and it really is grown out of the earth and it's the same earth that continue, continues to be polluted I, I don't sort of uh, suggest always the solution as much as helping to create um, more conversation and more criticism so that in turn you can have more agency I think um, I th we do talk a lot about I mean, a lot of the participants in the program really want to be designers and if we're not having a conversation with people of color about sustainability if it only exists in sort of white spaces then we're not really increasing the, the sort of movement of sustainability we're not making that connection um, together so I, I feel like primarily it is just to have the conversation and to look closely too at place um, how and what I mean by that is is in the sense that we do a lot of natural dyeing as well or we do rust dyeing and kind of looking at ways that we can have our environment inform us and vice versa so to sort of maybe steer away from what's always being presented to us as you know this this cheap item that cheap item but that you have a legacy too of making things and that's your birthright. You 
you know, people did that all through history, and it's part of who you are as well. So that's part of it. <laughs> I love that actually, because because well, you kind of it, it takes back the conversation because yes, there's a lot of times that when we're talking about ethical fashion or clean beauty, that there's this kind of elitist element and it's around price and accessibility, yeah. um, and and just a, a whole bunch of things that kind of are layered in in accessibility, which I think is is important because if we're going to move this conversation forward, then we need to figure out ways to make it completely accessible by all people for all people. So I love that. Okay, let's take a break and then we'll come right back. Sounds good. And this one is called Wake Up by EULA. We'll be right back. New York State cares about New York's farmers. That's why we've developed the New York State Grown and Certified Program. It's a seal New Yorkers can look for when they're shopping for food that comes from local farms. Customers are more likely to buy food that has the New York State Grown and Certified seal because it tells them that it comes from a farm that follows environmentally responsible, farm-safe protocols. In other words, the New York State Grown and Certified seal tells them their food is grown right right here in New York State. You're a farmer with a lot to do, but the time it takes to sign up for the program is a great investment for your business because it lets shoppers know that your food meets higher standards, has passed assessments, and is produced by environmentally friendly farming practices. To learn about participating in the program, go to certified.ny.gov. back. You're listening to Magnifico Radio, and I'm your host, Kate Black, and we're talking about cotton and the history of cotton. Um, So, Mariah, let's talk about your history for a few minutes, because when... It's it's so amazing that you're kind of an academic now and you're working with youth, but I don't think a lot of people know that your your background is so rooted in art and fashion. Mm-hmm. You've been a fashion designer for over two decades, close mm-hmm. to three decades, um, and so and with this label that you had with Feral Child, it was one of kind of the first sustainable slow fashion brands launched in 2006, and and you really had quite a lot of success. People started to kind of understand because. Because you were putting um, you were putting textiles together with sustainability in a way that was kind of unique at the time. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about how you and Alice launched it and, and what the what the idea was behind it? Sure. Um, you know, we didn't really have the word sustainability on the tip of our tongues when we started making things. It was really uh, something that came from our art practice, where as an artist sort of any material is game and especially discarded materials and um, we really gravitated to sort of the flotsam and jetsam of like uh, seconds, fabric, things that were sort of left behind and um, when we got more popular and we needed to sort of scale up, we realized that you couldn't really stay in the seconds market <laughs> you're going to run out of that yardage so we really decided to look at 
where our fabric was from and really research suppliers that were ethical, where the fabric was sustainable. And um, that was initially very limiting. Um, there was a lot of off-white <laughs> items. <laughs> so we... In the earthy shade of... Mm-hmm, we edged into printing um, first through screen printing, but then we realized digital printing is actually a sustainable method. Um, it uses way less water than uh, your typical dye methods of printing. Um, and that opened up a huge door for us um, to kind of imbue what we wanted to make as silhouettes with our imagery. And that really helped us sustain our art practice in that sense. Um, so that's kind of how we landed in the sustainable field. <laughs> It's but it was very cobbled together. <laughs> it was not, uh, you know, we didn't approach it with a very idealistic mentality. It was very natural to us to want to think closely about our materials. And I feel like that's also in my classes today that, you know, we do a lot of things that are so incredibly tactile. And I want very much for participants to have you know, a physical understanding of materials and how things get made. So when we're making, you know, our first item, we make a T-shirt, and it takes them, like, you know, most of the day. (laughs) You know, we can always have the discussion then to say, well, so when you, considering that it just took you six hours to make this T-shirt, how does that reorient the way you think about buying a T-shirt for $2? How do you, if someone paid you to do this, would, do you think you would really accept $2 or, you know, any denomination thereof? I think that one moment of making can really shift their thinking about uh, consuming. All of us, to All be honest. Us, I, I think, <laughs> right, like Martha Stewart, um, Martha Stewart for some reason did some research on sewists and who can sew, mm-hmm. um, and seven out of ten cannot sew, even a button. Sure. And so I think that, I think that that's actually a really missing piece, because we, we can't really associate price and, and effort. It's, it's, it's just so disconnected. So I think if we all made a t-shirt and realized how long it took, I think that would change um, the conversation. Conversation. And so I want to delve back into this idea about materials because mm-hmm. you, I saw a quote where you said that fashion designers are scientists. Can you explain? Sure. Uh, <laughs> I think that has a lot to do with experimentation and uh, adjustment that I was not going to be an artist when I was in college. I was going to be a brain surgeon. And I had a real love for experimentation for science, for, you know, isolating the variable. And I feel like clothing construction is so similar. Um, There's a lot of math involved that I truly, truly enjoy. Um, I think that my students do not enjoy the math as much as I do. But, yeah, the idea of experimenting, of uh, adjusting things so that they fit perfectly or get the idea across that you want to achieve, but also in the natural dye world that I've just started kind of being more um, able to run myself. Um, It's a lot of alchemy (laughs) with heating and 
pHs, and so there's still a lot of science and fashion and a lot of experimentation around just getting those balances right. And is that part of your program in the Bronx? Are you spending a lot of time on math and science and, and kind of those underpinnings of textile knowledge? Inadvertently, you kind of can't get away from it. Um, and it's a great way to understand things like circumference, to know when your waistline fits or doesn't fit. But um, it's not embedded in the curriculum, so to speak, unless I put it there. Right. Okay, so let's talk about we've just had the holiday weekend, mm-hmm. right? So I got these stats just before the show. So during this holiday weekend, guess how much Americans spent? I have no a lot. I, I'm scared. Okay. <laughs> I know they're feeling confident right now. Well, that's is, just the thing. So they spent $5 billion online, mm-hmm. and then they spent $3.34 billion in-store. And it was a new in-store record. So even though foot traffic was down, foot traffic mm-hmm. was down almost 10% in-store, they spent more than they ever have. What do you think is going on with us and, and our, our consumption habits? It's a terribly difficult question to answer. I, I worry that... I worry that people feel safe to, or want safety, and consume for safety, which sounds weird, but when you consume, I think part of the psychology of consuming is uh, the idea around feathering your nest or (laughs) creating insulation. Uh, I think purchasing can be about that. So this could go one of two ways. Some of the people, I think, are happy and feel safer and so they feel agency to consume other people <laughs> may feel a lot less safe now and might be consuming as a form of protection that's i, I mean yeah that's fascinating and so and so are your students at the level where you can have this kind of conversation as well like is this part of of what we talk about on the Saturday Mariah program Yes, the Saturday, it's really the, yes, the Saturday, we do talk about it. Um, we're doing a project right now that's about adornment and um, using fashion as sort of like ritualized self-care. Um, yeah, so how we use fashion signifiers to um, kind of combat social toxicity. Okay. Which would really be something along the lines of um, sort of choosing to wear something that elevates or really amplifies your identity can be a way to sort of fight back against bias or stereotype, specifically for people of color, like African-American. Young people, I think, have really honed a way of wearing garments that really push back on... um, oppressive forces in their lives around bias, stereotyping, um, you know, criminalization, both young women and young men. Right. So we do, we're designing garments that signify ways in which we can kind of care for our internal selves, but also show that externally. And so how would that translate to listeners, for example? Like, how, how can listeners participate in that kind of actualized self-care through fashion <laughs> that is slow and thoughtful? Oh, that's a really good question. I feel like, um, how can they do that? I think that they, 
that careful consideration of what we consume and what we wear is part of it. So um, making choices about what fibers are in your clothing, etc. That's one part of it. I also think that clothing can, it's a great time for people, politically speaking, to show how, where they stand through what they wear. And there was an interesting fight, maybe not interesting to everyone, <laughs> um, around the safety pin, wearing a little safety pin to show that you are supportive of people of color or the, their struggle. And that people of color really felt like that was a pretty lame uh, example <laughs> or, or sign um, that it would be much more helpful if they just came right out and did something meaningful around uh, racism and kind of disrupting racist uh, structures. So I, I think that you could be more vocal, be more present, be more upfront with every kind of aspect of what you do, what you wear, what you say to, to disrupt some of these situations, you know, some of these systems of oppression. That's such a good point, actually, because there's a lot of conversation about lack of um, diversity in in the fashion designers that get press and magazine mm-hmm. pages and everything else. So, yeah, it would be really nice to see people make choices to buy from designers of color or designers of diverse backgrounds as kind of a, a show of dollars. Because in this show, in Magnifico Radio, we talk a lot about placing your dollars in a mindful way towards mm-hmm. sustainability in the environment. But you're right, it could be totally political as well. So when you're shopping, what's the first thing that you look at? Do you look at like where you are in terms of a store or a maker or a designer, or do you look at the materials, or do you look at like your the particular object? So you're trying to replace something, mm-hmm. or you're like what's what's kind of your lead when you're consuming? I'm a I'm a shopping stalker. <laughs> what does that mean? I I really look at only a few things, and I look at them long and hard. <laughs> um, yeah, I you know one um, brand that I am interested in is Black Crane. The they're sold in a lot of the the brand sold in a lot of high end boutiques, but the price point's quite low, and it's made in the U.S. And I'm fascinated by what are they doing? What how is this? How are they doing this and existing in this dual space? So, you know, I, I like their clothing. I buy their clothing. Um, and it's it's less about replacement as much as, you know, something that I wouldn't make myself. Uh. <laughs> well, that's the other question. How do, how do designers shop, really? Yeah, I mean, I do look I, I do look at a lot of fashion, obviously. It's, it's a... It's like looking at paintings. I really look at it. I really study it. I really break it down. Um, And then I really look to make. I feel like it's more exciting for me to make the the garment than it is for me to just buy it. Although there are some things that I would really like to buy. (laughs) But I'm on a budget. Yeah, join the club. <laughs> so, so let's just finish this conversation about cotton. So, if you were to make something or you were to buy something, what's your kind of what's your gauge of cotton? Are you looking for domestically grown organic cotton or like where what's what's in the hierarchy of cotton for you? To be honest, I I almost never use it. Why? It's it's 
it's like a strike. I'm on strike. Uh, part of the um, unit that we t- that I taught on cotton, every participant wrote a breakup letter to cotton to just talk about like this relationship has been really abusive. I need to get away. <laughs> this was sort of a funny way of really saying like how far can I go? How far am I willing to take it? And really, on any given day, I'm not really wearing it. Um, so I don't buy it uh, unless I buy. Uh, you know, a denim that's, um, you know, a le- leftover goods. A denim would be one thing I'd buy, but it's always in seconds. Um, but I don't really use jersey. <laughs> I've just kind of moved away from it. That's so amazing. Which is, a, yeah, it's, I, I had to be, you know, it's like I'm on strike. I love that. So (laughs) on that note, where can people find out more about you and your projects? That's a really good um, question. (laughs) Do you have a website? We have a blog. Okay. Uh, The blog title is ridiculous because when I started it, I didn't really understand that I was making a brand. But it is uh, Mariah, my name, M-R-I-A-H-D-Y-F portfolio at Tumblr. Okay. It's a Tumblr. Um, and it talks about the projects. It details. It has imagery. Um, I work with a really terrific photographer, David Flores, and he documents the work just beautifully with every part of the artistic <laughs> tool possible. It's He's amazing. So the, a lot of it's on there. And say it again, Mariah. Mariah. <laughs> Mariah D-Y-F. Okay. Portfolio. Dot com. Dot Tumblr. Dot Tumblr. Okay, great. Embarrassing, embarrassing title. I think it's fine. It's great. And, and you can see the, the students have their Tumblrs, like, in there. Okay. Also, it's their links. And what they post is also incredibly terrific. Do you have cotton breakup stories on there? We don't have one. We could put them up. We could put them up. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I think they're going to blog about uh, Magnifico Radio. Okay, good. So I'll look for that. So maybe hashtag Magnifico Radio. Definitely. If you have a cotton breakup letter, you can do hashtag Magnifico Radio, and Mariah will see it. Um, thank you so much, oh, Mariah thank you so Carlson, much. for joining me. <laughs> um, I want to thank you for tuning into Heritage Radio Network, where you can find me each Monday live at 1 o'clock. And you can always listen to Magnifico Radio on iTunes or Stitcher. And while you're there, maybe give us a rating or subscribe. Please check out our blog or sign up for our newsletter at Magnifico.com. And have any questions or comments, you can email them to me at radio at Magnifico.com. Until next week. listening to heritage radio network food radio supported by you for our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events subscribe to our newsletter enter your email at the bottom of our website heritageradionetwork.org connect with us on facebook instagram and twitter at heritage underscore radio heritage radio network is a non-profit organization driving conversations to make the world a better fairer more delicious place And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.